That's a lot of kids. That's awesome. If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to 1 Kings 2. First Kings chapter 2, like we're doing uh, each Sunday night through the spring, we're working our way through the life of Solomon. Uh, we kicked off last time with Solomon's, Solomon's ascension to the throne, uh, and that was a little dicey, uh, how he was going to become king, because there was a plot to try to seize uh, the royal throne by the, the one who apparently had... Uh, some measure of right to it, Adonijah, and yet he was not God's chosen king. Uh, This evening we're going to hear David's last words and see Solomon's first steps as king. And the question that we'll be asking uh, is, is the way that Solomon proceeds the way of true wisdom? Is Is the way he proceeds the way of true wisdom? In order to see that, answer that question this evening, We need God's help. Let's ask him for it. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us, that you continue to come to us by Holy Scripture, and you declare your will for us. And even in this passage this evening, uh, which probably very few of us have actually heard preached, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes of faith, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Because of the length of the chapter, we're just going to read the first 12 verses of 1 Kings chapter 2, and then cover the rest of the content as we go along. So 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzili, the Gilead, Gileadite, And let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shemei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, from Barumim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore... Do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers, 
and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Thus far, God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a marvelous, though horribly bloody, scene towards the end of the classic 1972 movie, The Godfather. Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, has taken control of the Corleone mob family. And on the day of his niece's baptism, he stood in at the baptism as her godfather. As the baptism is happening, though, his henchmen were at work eliminating the heads of the other crime families. And the result would be that uh, all of the power in the city would actually be consolidated under Michael Corleone's control. As the Roman Catholic baptismal rite is ongoing, the entire ritual, just about, is in Latin until the music swells and the priest asks, Michael, do you renounce Satan? At which point the scene cuts away to one of the rival mob bosses being blown away. And Michael then says, I do renounce him. And his works, another mob boss bites the dust. Michael then says, I do renounce him. And his pomp, his sister Connie's husband, whose baby is being baptized at that moment, is killed with his mistress by one of Michael's henchmen. I do renounce him. And after all the bloodshed, the priest will say, Michael, go in peace. Which presumably he does, since all of his rivals are eliminated and his rule has been consolidated. Now, you might wonder what the Godfather has to do with the life of Solomon. But when you read 1 Kings chapter 2, it feels just like that scene. As King David offers his last words to his newly crowned son, he offers him counsel, but, but the counsel is mixed. And it raises an important question which will hang over the entire life of Solomon. Here's the question. What's the nature of true wisdom? What's the nature of true wisdom? You see, we're used to thinking of Solomon as the wisest man who ever lived. And yet, for those of us who have grown up with this notion, we're also confused in this story of the life of Solomon by the incredible folly in which he engages. His foolish marriage alliances with foreign kings. His his collection of wives and concubines, his, his construction projects that ultimately alienate allies, his refusal to eliminate the high places, and in fact, his willingness to sacrifice and worship there. How do we reconcile Solomon the wise with Solomon the fool? Well, it begins to make sense when we realize that what we view as Solomon's folly looked like wisdom to others in the ancient Near Eastern world. It was conventional wisdom, the wisdom of the way kings should rule and present themselves, how they should consolidate their power, how they should trophy their dominance. But the conventional wisdom of the world around us is all too often folly in God's eyes, especially when it comes to how we deal with our enemies. How do we know? 
How do we know that the way the world thinks about how to deal with our enemies is folly in God's eyes? Well, we know because the true Solomon, the true Prince of Peace, the, the one who is wisdom incarnate, he didn't treat his enemies that way. While we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Out of his love and compassion, Jesus sought to rescue us from us. And he counsels us to live in just the same way, to love our enemies, to pray for them, to bless them. These are the steps that Jesus' followers take as we walk in his path. How different Jesus' way is from the last words of counsel that David gives his son. The, the first words of, of 1 Kings 2 tell us that David's about to die. When David's time to die drew near. And as often happens in the Old Testament, the last moments of someone's life become an opportunity for last words and final counsel. But David's counsel is mixed, containing both true wisdom and conventional wisdom. Uh, On the one hand, there are words of true wisdom that David gives in this counsel. Look at verse 2. David says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Here we have echoes of God's words to Joshua after the death of Moses. Be strong, be courageous. How, Lord? Well, by by keeping yourself in God's way, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies. What's the result of this, Lord? Well, so that you may prosper in all that you do, And God might confirm to you the promises that he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now this wisdom that David gives, this true wisdom, comes straight from Deuteronomy and will extend forward into Solomon's own collection of wisdom in the book we call Proverbs. It is true wisdom. This is the right way. The way of wisdom is to walk in the fear of the Lord to obey his commands, to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But what's striking is that you have these words of true wisdom sitting beside words of conventional wisdom. With the moreover in verse 5, you see it, moreover, you also know what Joab did, and so forth. It feels like David has switched gears, has begun to think like an ancient Near Eastern potentate, how to deal with enemies, how to bring retribution. For different reasons, Joab and and Shimei are to be dealt with, but they're to be dealt with in the same kind of fashion. Both in verse 6 and in verse 9, you shall bring his gray head down with blood to the grave, to Sheol. On the other hand, the, the sons of Barzili the Gileite are to be cared for, rewarded. Let them be among those who eat at your table. It seems too much like the the conventional wisdom of the Godfather movies. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. 
I'm going to make him an offer that he can't refuse. Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. But, but notice, David calls this a kind of wisdom twice in verse 6 and in verse 9. He appeals to Solomon's wisdom. Did you see that? Verse 6, Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray hood go down to Sheol in peace. Verse 9, Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. This, This is before God appears. To Solomon in the next chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 3. Before God comes to give Solomon wisdom, Solomon's wisdom is already praised, which sets up a tension in the life of Solomon, one that we'll see throughout his life. Will he operate according to true wisdom, according to God's way, God's law, God's statutes, his commandments, or will he Will he operate according to conventional wisdom? Will he walk in the way of the Lord or the way of an ancient Near Eastern king? In the rest of this chapter, we see how he operates because he follows David's counsel in order to consolidate his control over his kingdom. In this consolidation, there are four enemies with whom Solomon deals. It might be the case that a few of them had it coming to them, but still four that he deals with. First is Adonijah in verses 13 to 25. Adonijah, who had had been displaced from becoming king, concocts a scheme uh, in order to create a a backdoor to seizing power. He, He approaches Bathsheba and requests one of his father's concubines as his own. And while on the surface in verses 13 to 25, Bathsheba's involvement looks somewhat naive. I actually think she knows exactly what's going to happen. Sure, Adonijah, I'll ask Solomon for Abishag for you. Solomon, you know what to do. Because, of course, the threat that Solomon had made to Adonijah in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 52 would come true. If wickedness is found in him, he shall die. And the refrain of the chapter happens to Adonijah Verse 25, so King Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada. He struck him down and he died. The next two were Abathar the priest and Joab, the head of the army. Abathar is exiled, exiled from Jerusalem and exiled from the priesthood. Allegedly, according to Solomon in verse 26, he deserved death. But but the end of his ministry was ultimately because he had supported Adonijah for the throne. Joab, too, is dealt with also presumably for supporting Adonijah, although also for the reasons that David himself supplied. And though Joab tried to claim asylum by clinging to the horns of the altar in Jerusalem's tabernacle, just as Adonijah had tried to do in chapter 1, the Old Testament law in Exodus 21 verse 14 caused Solomon to bring him to death. There in Exodus 21, 14, if a man willfully attacks another to kill by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he might die. And so again, the refrain in verse 34, then Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. 
The last enemy to be dealt with as part of Solomon's consolidation of power is Shimei in verses 36 to 46. And here, Solomon appears to be shrewd. He confines Shimei to Jerusalem, and and he warns him that if, if he leaves for any reason, know for certain that you shall die. In the event, three years later, Shimei leaves the city to track down a runaway slave with the result that he would die. And Solomon could claim that your blood is on your own head. And whether it is or not, still the refrain again, verse 46. Then the king commanded Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down and he died. What's the result of all of this? Well, twice the historian who wrote Kings tells us in verse 12, And again in verse 46, that that Solomon's kingdom was firmly established. To be sure, eliminating threats and dealing with enemies did consolidate Solomon's rule and establish his control. But it feels too much like Michael Corleone, too much like the Godfather. Is this the way of wisdom? To cut off and exile enemies just like any other ancient Near Eastern king? At least for me, studying and reading 1 Kings chapter 2 makes me long for a different kind of king who deals with disobedience and rebellion in a different kind of way. Because the reality is that you and I are rebels, usurpers of the throne that belongs to God alone. We are the enemies who have lived far too often as though there was no God, no king, no rules, no right. We are the ungodly ones who have flouted all of God's rules and ways. We've not followed in the way of true wisdom. We've not kept the charge of the Lord. We've not walked in his ways. We've not kept his statutes. And so if God was a king like Solomon or David or some other ancient Near Eastern king, you and I, we would be marked men and women. The Bible recognizes this in Psalm 130. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? Who could stand? And the answer, of course, is no one. But thankfully, the true king of the world is a better king than Solomon. Because Jesus the king deals with his enemies, not by their dying for his peace, but by his dying in their place. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 tells us this. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. According to Paul in Romans 5.10, what were we? Enemies. What did Jesus do? He died for us. What was the result? Reconciliation. Why did he do this? Just two verses earlier. By this we know love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did he do this? Love. Love. The king loves his enemies. Loves them. Loves them enough to to go to the cross for them to die in their place, not to consolidate his rule by eliminating his enemies, but rather by rescuing them. But he calls you and I to walk in just the same way, 
What was it that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To live this way, loving your enemies, extending yourself to die in their place, it looks like foolishness to the world around us. The conventional wisdom of the world is to crush our enemies, to eliminate them, to exile them, to consolidate control so that they can't bring us harm. But true wisdom, which is Jesus the King's own way, is to love as our King loves. These are the first steps into the kingdom of God where our God, Father, rules. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we bless you for your great kindness that while we were yet enemies, you rescued us. You died in our place to save us from all that we deserve. Lord, thank you for your great and abiding love that you have shown to us. And indeed, thank you, Father, for such a great love that you would send the Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we we confess that all too often we operate like the world around us, And we deal with our enemies by cutting them off, not by rescuing them or forgiving them, not by loving them or praying for them. Lord Jesus, grant us grace in the light of your mercy and love to be able to love in some kind of way that looks like your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.